Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. All right, we are continuing our vision series. If you turn with me today to Matthew chapter 26, verses 24 through 28 on your Bible apps, if you do hard copy Bibles still exist? Do you still own those? I know some people, see that? I know some people still like that. I like to, I like to feel the pages turn myself. And of course, the, the text will be on the screen as well. Uh, we're continuing our vision series uh, for the church based on our, um, our mission statement which is that we exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. And so the four uh, four values that we have are faith, family, following, and finding. And today I'm talking to you about this idea of following. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I mentioned last week that we've been watching the uh, TV series, The Chosen. Anybody see that? Anybody watch any of those episodes? We've been enjoying that as a family and and uh, one of the, the common themes, uh, at least early in the show, when Jesus is gathering his disciples, is that moment he has with them when he looks them in the eyes and he says, follow me. And you know, I think every one of us need to see the eyes of Christ looking at us and saying, follow me. Because I think sometimes we get the idea when it comes to following Jesus and, you know, kind of being all in. And, you know, being a real Christian or being a wholehearted Christian, that kind of an idea. I think sometimes, I know I did growing up, you kind of get the idea that it's for like this elite group of people. And everybody else just can kind of like come and go. But those people are really serious about Jesus. And yet Jesus comes to every one of us. And we need to see his eyes, looking at the eyes of our hearts, as Heidi sang beautifully this morning, open the eyes of my heart, looking at you and saying, follow me. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's one of our values. And what does it mean? So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. As Jesus invites, he not only invites his disciples to follow him, he gives some of the nature of that and some of the character of what that, what that is and what that looks like. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, our eyes are on you, and, and, and as we sang, we, we, we pray now that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, open the eyes of our understanding, that we could see you, that we could hear you, the, the small, still voice, as the scripture refers to it, uh, calling, whispering in our hearts, follow me, come, follow me. Help us to understand what that means. And not as we see it, not to see it as some kind of, a, a, I don't know, a dark, a hard, difficult thing, even though uh, it, it is hard. It's not easy. Uh, but help us to see it as the, for what it is, a great 
joy, a great privilege, and let it be the joy of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus says, if anyone, so that confirms what I just said, if, if anyone, not if these 12 special guys, you know, or if the pastors or the elders want to follow me, if the missionary wants to follow me, you know, if the person who's really, really, you know, into studying the Bible wants to follow me. Now, th there is this broadness to what Jesus is saying here when he says, if anyone and which of you in this room is not included in that simple word, that simple idea? Anyone. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we're going to look at three ideas here and try to answer three questions from this text of Scripture about this idea of following. Number one, what does it mean? Number two, how does it feel, like inside? How does it feel to follow Jesus? And then number three, where do we start? Or how do we get on track? Where's, where's the spot where we can kind of walk this out? Let's look at this first idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Let's go back to the, to the scripture, and I'm going to read the first two verses again because I think we can boot this point off of those two verses. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And of course, this text begins, if anyone would be my disciple, or Jesus told his disciples. So let's look at this word disciple. It's pretty simple, actually. In the Greek, it, it literally means learner. You're a learner. You're a student. And in his day, in Jesus' day, eager religious young adults would follow rabbis and their teachings. And the goal of following the rabbi was to not only learn their teachings, but to imitate the rabbi. And so Jesus in that cultural context, says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my learner, follow me. So at the fundamental level, to be a disciple is to commit your life to learning from Jesus. It's to say, I'm all in. You're number one. I'm going to follow you. But as you follow him, you find that you are not only learning teachings full of principles and wisdom, which is kind of how we would typically think about teaching, right? They're, they're concepts. We're not simply learning concepts or principles or wisdom, but you're actually learning a person. Part of the learning is you're learning a person, what he's like, who he is, and what he did for you. And that's why we say that to be a follower of Jesus is to have a relationship with him. And that's actually the first big idea that kind of hit me in my life when I was nine years old that kind of captured my imagination and captured my heart and made me realize the difference between a real Christian and just a cultural Christian or a ritualistic Christian or a religious person. We, we had attended, for me, we'd attended religious education every Tuesday afternoon in elementary school. We'd, we'd, Catholics would get dismissed early. We'd go down the street to St. John's and I'd get religious education and we'd, you know, we'd learn about Jesus. Uh, and then our family went through some turmoil. My parents were considering divorce. My father and his alcoholism kind of became the headline of our lives and, and of my family. And, and my mother just begged God to help her. And a, a babysitter named, named Connie, who happened to be the younger sister of a church planter in the little town we were in, uh, his name was Jim Wolford, she babysat for our family. And she said to my mother, Hey, why don't you come to my brother Jimmy's church? Really small at the time. I think it was about a dozen people. Why don't you come to my brother Jimmy's church? You know, maybe God will help you. I know you're going through a hard time with your husband. 
And out of desperation, my mother brought me and my siblings to that church. And they were serious. Like, you could tell they were serious about God. And I actually sat in the corner and laughed as a nine-year-old kid. Like, I'd never seen people, like, you know, worshiping, lifting their hands, singing out loud, just exuberant interaction with God and his word and and the the whole gathering. It was very, my experience had been very quiet. And so I sat in the corner and I laughed. But Jimmy Wolford started, immediately started a youth group with me and my siblings. And one of the first things he said was, he said, do you believe that the president of the United States exists? At the time it was Ronald Reagan, just dated myself. And we said, well, yeah. He goes, but do you know him personally? We said, well, no. He goes, well, there, th- th- that's what I'm talking to you about. He says, you can know someone exists and know a lot about them, but not know them personally. He says, it's the same way with God. You can know a lot about God, but if you don't have a relationship with him, then you don't really know him. And he says, there's a major difference between religion and relationship. And he said, what the gospel offers us is not dead religion where you do some rituals and works, punch your religious time card and punch out. What the gospel offers is a relationship. Sports fans, think about like Michael Jordan. I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I just saw a little TikTok video of him yesterday getting out of a car and, you know, fans clamoring for his autograph, you know, what, 20 years after he was in his prime. Still a, still a major kind of sports rock star. I know a lot about him, but if I saw Michael Jordan on the street and I walked up to him, I'm like, Mike, he'd be like, who are you? I'd be like, what do you mean, who am I? I know a lot about you, man. You won six you know, NBA titles. You know, you're one of the greatest players of all time, scoring records, played for the Chicago Bulls. Your dad, your dad, man, I, I saw that. I was right there with you when your dad was murdered, right? That was a terrible story. So it's me, Mike. He would say, who the heck are you? So the fact that I know a lot about him doesn't mean I know him. So this, this knowledge when, when we're learning is not simply I'm going to learn some, mora- some moral principles. It's literally learning a person and establishing and building and growing in a relationship with them. What he's like, who he is, and what he did for you. Isn't that how we understand that in human terms, right? If you want to get to know somebody, what do you do? Spend time with them. You get to know them. You learn their character. You study them. They study you. You listen to one another. So to follow Jesus is to be wholehearted disciples, wholehearted learners of him. That's the idea. He accepted nothing else from his followers but total commitment. So this, this kind of learning about Jesus becomes the central focus of your life if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, if you follow him. And then he says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, when we hear that, again, we typically think of, okay, there it is. This is what I hate about religion, the denial of pleasure, the suppression of the fundamental appetites of my life that I want to give myself over to, right? Deny yourself. But as we study not only what Jesus is saying here, but what his apostles taught afterwards, we find that this self-denial isn't simply the denial of sinful pleasure, but it's actually on a deeper level, the denial of self. What do I mean by that? It's the denial of the right to rule, the denial of self-lordship, and even on a deeper level, it's the denial of self-dependency and self-sufficiency. So to truly be saved by grace through faith, which is the summary of the gospel, we have to deny that I could ever save myself. I have to deny my own righteousness, my own performance as the standard by which God might accept me. I deny it, and I say there has to be another way. And Paul talked about this in Philippians. He says, 
I've discarded my righteousness, my resume, my performance, my reality in order that I might gain Christ and find a righteousness or an acceptance by God, not based on my performance, but based on Christ's performance at the cross. So the, the, the self-denial is not simply, um, but I need to stop sinning. No, it's to say, I need to stop trying to save myself. Stop trying to rule myself and let Jesus truly be my king, sit on the throne of my heart, and let his work be the standard by which I approach God. So to deny yourself means I trust you, not me, and I'm rearranging my life around you. That's an important picture. Many people like Jesus. Most people kind of like Jesus. I mean, believer and unbeliever. Like People in our society, they like Jesus. But even a lot of people who claim to be his or claim to be Christians, um, I think one of, the, one of the dynamics you see between real and phony is if, if we are asking Jesus to arrange himself around us, we're not understanding what he's saying here in Matthew 16. I don't ask Jesus to arrange himself around me like I'm the center of the solar system. He's just a planet kind of orbiting me. The call here is you're my king. I trust you. I'm rearranging my life around you. You're the center of the solar system. You're the king and everything is orbiting around you. And by the way, everything works way better that way too because that's the way it was designed to work. I wasn't designed to be the center of the solar system. My idols weren't designed to be the center of the solar system. The things I might put in the place of God in my life. Everything works better when it orbits around Jesus, when, when my life orbits around Christ, when my family, my, my marriage, my relationships, my work, my goals, my career, my money, everything works better when it orbits around Jesus instead of asking Jesus to orbit around it. So it means Jesus is the center. We're saying my life is yours. My time is yours. My resources, my money is yours. My attention is yours. My affection is yours. My family is yours. My past, yours. Present, future, all yours. And that's how everything was designed to work, orbiting around Christ with him as the center. And we understand this, right? Don't we understand this, especially in romance? If, if we say you're number one, guys, if you say you're number one to your woman, that kind of means there's not number two, right? I mean, that, that doesn't play well, right? Sweetheart, you are number one. <laughs> I'm just so into you. Great. I just want you to know that there's, you're way prettier than my number two. Number two? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, she's like not even close to you. I mean, you know, I hang out with her a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to go see her a couple hours. But you're number one. I mean, I'm going to spend most of my time with you. You're number, you're number one for the affections of my heart. And, and, you know, but I just left a little room for number two. That'd be weird. Super weird. And most women wouldn't commit to a dude under those circumstances. Until you say, to say you're number one means there's really not a number two. There's not another center of my life. There's not another center of my affection. There's not another center of my solar system. And, and that's really how we are to approach God, to say you're number one. That means there's no idols. And if there are, I'm going to battle them to keep them out of the center of my life. And folks, he's worth it. There's nothing greater in the universe, nothing more valuable than Jesus Christ in our relationship with him. Jesus refers to this relationship in one of his parables as the pearl of great price. And he says the wise man, when he finds the pearl of great price, sells all that he has so that he can buy that field 
even if the field is full, you know, the field's full of maybe some other junk and some, some brush and you got to maybe, you know, move some things up. But there's a, if there's a pearl in there, he's going to buy the field. He's going to buy the field because it's so valuable. Jesus is the most valuable thing in the universe. He's, he's worth our lives. He's worth our affection. He's, he's worth our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and our 50s and our 60s. He's worth our elderly years. He's worth our lives. And that's why Jesus says in verse 25, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? In other words, do you truly profit? If, if, are you gaining any value if you gain the whole world but lose the most valuable thing, your relationship with Christ and what that, what that gives to you? the eternal life that gives to you, the salvation that gives to you. It, ultimately, it's a, it's a hypothetical, or it's a rhetorical question, right? It's, the answer is he's not gaining anything. Whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And it's interesting, there, there's a lot of different stories in society, in our like, materialistic celebrity society, there's a lot of stories of those who find success and find it bitterly unsatisfying. One of the famous stories, uh, and I'm grateful that he kind of shared his story, was right around the time that Mel Gibson released the Passion of the Christ movie, he started sharing his story and how at the height of his career, when he was the darling of Hollywood, you know, the most recognizable face in Hollywood making all these great movies, he was also suicidal because it was totally unsatisfying. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? We've heard tragic stories of, of you know, rock star CEOs and, and businessmen who, once they retire and end their careers, within two years, their lives fall apart. Or the suicide of famous celebrities or the implosion of a family or of a marriage of famous people because they've gained the whole world, but they've lost their soul. It's a tragedy. There was another man who, whose life took a different path. In 1956, five young men from uh, Wheaton Bible College got a strong desire in their hearts to reach the unreached people in South America, uh, in particular Ecuador, um, with the gospel of Christ. And the, there was a tribe in the, Equ- in the Amazon River Basin called, called the Aucas, they were unreached. They were still um, considered, you know, primitive and savage. Uh, their practices were violent, um, and they fiercely protected their tribal grounds violently. And five men decided they wanted to go and reach these people for Christ. They were warned, especially as they went down to begin to learn about the people. They were warned by the locals, don't go near them. Don't try to reach out to them. You know, th- you're, you're going to waste your life. And yet they felt a call. And they felt like they had a wise plan that would maximize the possibility of, of uh, not dying. <laughs> so they tried to build a friendship with them. They left them gifts. And you can watch their story in the movie, The End of the Spear, which chronicles um, that story through the eyes of Nate Saint, the pilot. But not long after they made contact with the tribe, all five men were speared to death. And uh, their bodies left on a beach by the river. And uh, they found several 
as they flew in, they found several bodies floating in the river. One of those men was Jim Elliott. And um, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, became famous for her writings and her speaking in the years that followed. She was just a, a, a princess of God who just carried a dignity and a royalty that you couldn't help when you heard her speak, but just to feel inspired and, and um, encouraged in your faith. And she talked about the, the mourning and the grief of losing her husband, but she also talked about the voices in society that were saying these young men wasted their lives and how stupid they were to even attempt to do this. And, and uh, the, anyway, they, they found Jim Elliott's journal. And one of his last entries in his journal was a saying that he came up with that is based on this text of Scripture. It's become a famous saying. And the saying, the quote is, that man is no fool who will give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That man is no fool who will give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Jim Elliott answered the question that many people were asking and the criticism many people were bringing. And from his grave, from his journal, he says it was worth it. Jesus was worth it. I haven't lost anything. I've, I, I gave... Nobody took my life from me. I've laid it down like Christ did. I've, I've given it away. And he said, I haven't lost anything because I had everything because I had Christ and the pearl of great price. And that quote in Jim Elliott's life and the lives of these men and Elizabeth Elliott has inspired many, many people since their days. As if you read this, the book Through the Gates of Splendor, which is the story of those men, but also through the eyes of Elizabeth Elliott and what followed, you will find out that she and a small group of people went back to the Akas after her husband's death. And they, that tribe came to Christ. And there's a picture in the book of Elizabeth Elliot um, cutting the hair of the man that murdered her husband, that actually threw the spear that murdered her husband. Incredible forgiveness, incredible grace, incredible picture of the gospel. They found the pearl of great price. That man is no fool who will give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was a disciple. He was a wholehearted disciple, a follower of Christ, no matter where that life led him. And Jesus looks at all of us and says, follow me, learn of me, imitate me, follow me. So what does it feel like then to be a, a follower? What, is it, what does following feel like? And this is actually a very important point. And, and you know, what are we talking about feelings for? Well, because the Bible does. And, and I think that the Bible does not give us permission to let our Christian faith simply be a set of cold beliefs that we give mental assent to, but don't feel its impact in our heart. The Bible, the gospel is constantly calling us to feel it, to ask the Holy Spirit to, to fill us in a way where things we know mentally would go that long 18 inches to the heart and our hearts would burn like the disciples of old. Our hearts would burn when we walk out our faith and, and interact with Christ in our relationship with him. So this is actually a very important point. And I, I, I want to kind of boot this idea off of verse 27. Just one simple idea here. Jesus, again, in verse 27, refers to God as the Father. His favorite title that he would use for God the Father. And it was a contrast in his day to how the religious leaders were referring to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. He would call him father over and over again. And family language permeated Jesus' words and teaching. And that's really important to know if we're going to talk about this point of what does it feel like because 
I want to I point out something that is actually pretty surprising and powerful if you understand uh, what's going on in the narrative of the New Testament. Disciple was a very common word used in Jesus' day, so he used it. And the writers of the Gospels used it. And it's in the book of Acts. And as we said, it means learner or pupil. But you say disciple, that doesn't feel very family-y, does it? A lot of us may, might not even like connect with that term. And here's, here's the interesting fact. The word disciple is used in the Gospels a lot and in the book of Acts a lot, over and over again. But the word disciple actually almost completely disappears from the New Testament after the book of Acts. It does not appear in the apostles' writings. Why? I'll let the Bible answer the question. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The same relationship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father, the same love that He enjoyed from the Father, sort of the sunshine of the Father's love shining into His heart and on His life. Paul is saying in Galatians, you now have that relationship with the Father through Christ, so let the Holy Spirit cry in your heart, Abba, Father, like Jesus cried, Abba, Father. Sonship language replaces discipleship language in the New Testament after the book of Acts. So what, what am I saying? What is the gospel saying? To be a disciple is to be a son or a daughter. To think like a son or a daughter is to be a disciple of Christ in the New Testament. And it's interesting because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, and, and that, that phrase was left untranslated in scriptures from its original language because, uh, I don't know, that maybe there wasn't a, a, a perfect translation of it or a thorough translation, or maybe we, the, the writers just wanted us to hear exactly what Jesus said. He said, Abba! And this, like the intimacy of that, the warmth of that kind of came clear to me when we lived in western New York and after church one Sunday, we, we took the youth group and we went up to the... Uh, the River Canal uh, in Penfield in the Rochester area, this beautiful area where they had an ice cream shop. And we all grabbed ice cream and we're sitting there on one of the benches as, you know, a lot of families and people are just kind of walking by in the canal. And I literally just preached on this idea of Abba Father. And I'm sitting there with a youth group. And all of a sudden, this Arabic man walks by and you hear a little girl say, Abba, Abba. And she's running to her father right in front of us and she leaps into her father's arms, and he, he embraces her. I'm like, that, that's it. That's it right there. That's what God wants us to see in the gospel. That's a disciple. It's a loved person by the father. There's this embrace. There's this family relationship. It's not just pupil and learner, like you're in a class. It's a father-son, a father-daughter, and, and the warmth of that. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You feel loved, and that love motivates your obedience, or the, your obedience becomes the effect of that love that you're experiencing. You're not coerced. Your heart has been won over by the love of God. Paul said in Galatians 2, he loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters and friends, you need to feel the, the, the gospel and the love of God in a way where it feels that personal. 
Yes, God loves everybody. We, we kind of get that, right? God, God so loved the world. But Paul said, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. You know, when I was growing up, I would hear, I would call them evangelist tricks, you know? Evangelists who would come through town or at some conference or some gathering, and they'd say, come to the front and receive Christ, even if you were the only one on earth. Jesus still would have come and died for you. And I remember even as a kid thinking, that is such, that is so manipulative. That's not true. He wouldn't have done that for me. I, I thought that. And then one day I'm looking at Galatians, and Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and unless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, he says, I live by faith in the Son. And then he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm like, they were right. At least he would have done it for Paul. You go to the Gospel of John. John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, so he he's, was clearly the same way. So in other words, the deeper you grow in your faith, in the gospel, you grow in your Christian faith, the more you feel loved and the more you feel confident in that love and the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Man. So what does it feel like to follow? You feel like a loved person. You feel love. It feels free. It feels warm. John Wesley called it a heart strangely warmed. And that's what people don't understand about Christians. They say, gosh, you're so, pr you're so prudish and you suppress your pleasures. no. Our hearts are won over by grace, and one great overarching desire for God has set every other desire in order in our lives, and everything orbits around Him now, and it makes sense. And I feel like a loved person. He's won my heart. Here's how He does it. Romans 6.14, I think I have that for you. Paul writes, Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. So here's another picture of how it feels to be religious versus in a relationship, to be, you know, ritualistic and, and, and really not experiencing the life of the faith versus really walking in the power of the gospel and the life of the Spirit. Let's say that you are working um, on a ship um, under a very cruel taskmaster, and he, he's having you, you got to mop, you know, you got to mop the deck, and you got to, you know, you got to do this, and, you gotta, and, he's, and he's insulting you all the time and, and just... You just never feel encouraged. You're scared of them. And, and uh, man, you just hate working for this captain, but you're stuck on the ship. And, uh, and, and you work morning, noon, and night, and you just feel like a slave. And all of a sudden, a ship comes by, and, and uh, they take over the ship, and you get a new captain. And this new captain is kind and, and warm, and, and he's delivered you from the slavery of the old captain. And you're still on the ship, but you now have a new captain. And you start doing some of the same work, but somehow that work feels different because you're, you're not under the old master. You're under a new master. You're under Christ, and he's, he's encouraging you, and he's, he builds you up, and you, you know that he loves you. And let's say you're out there, man, you're like, man, this is, just, this is different. I love this new captain. And you're mopping on the floor one day, and you hear a voice coming from one of those pipes, those big old pipes. You see those things? Sticking up on the deck. I don't know what they are, just like a, a vent pipe. And you can hear a voice from the dungeons below where the old captain is locked up and he starts insulting you again. Is that you, Derek? <laughs> I know that's you, you loser. You idiot. What are you, what are you doing up there? And all, and all those old voices come back and, and you just start feeling the bitterness and the, 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 the bondage of that again. But then you're like, wait a second. 
that voice doesn't have any power anymore. He's locked up in the dungeon downstairs. I can hear it, but he's not my master anymore. I have a new master. Paul says, sin shall no longer be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace, the king of grace, Christ. God doesn't drive us. He encourages us. He leads us. He fills us. He motivates us by his love to the point where Paul said, the love of Christ compelled me. You want to know what motivated Paul's ministry? Not, well, I have this solemn duty. I must. He said, the love of Christ compels me to preach. He's motiva- it becomes your, your engine. You're motivated by it. So because God doesn't drive us, we don't drive us. We're talking about vision for the church. And one of the, one of the marks of the culture that we have at Redeeming Hope is we want it to be marked by cheerful giving. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't just want to kind of put people and volunteers in places and crack the whip and drive them and motivate with shame. and, and uh, No, we, we want to have a, a culture of rest, a culture of uh, plurality, of team ministry where we're all functioning in, in ministry together and encouraging one another in that ministry. And so what, when, I, when I've led a, a ministry in a cheerful giving culture, my conversation goes like this. If I was leading the worship ministry, for example, I would call uh, the drummer and I'd, I'd say, hey, uh, we'd really love to see your gift used in the church. Is that something you have a desire to do? Yeah, I do. Well, here, here's how we're going to do this. You tell me how many times a month you can cheerfully give to the worship ministry of the church and we won't ask beyond that. In New York, there was a drummer who said, I can give one, one, month, uh, one Sunday a month. Great. Praise God. And we used him one Sunday a month, and it was great when he was up there, but we weren't like, you know, we really need to have you up there, and Jesus wants you to make, you know, these sacrifices for him, and you really should be up there every Sunday. We establish a cheerful giving culture like we're establishing here, and it becomes a culture of rest and plurality where we all serve together in ministry, hopefully in joy. Okay. So how does it feel? You feel loved. You feel free. You feel motivated by that love, and you cheerfully follow Christ and do his will for your life. And finally, where do we start? Like, where's the connection point? I I guess sort of a side way of asking this question is, where's the power source? Where do I plug in? Where's the power source? Let's go back to an earlier verse in his text. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is it? I didn't know I was losing something. What, what am I forfeiting if I try to save my life? He's contrasting two kinds of life here. Whoever would save his life, he's saying, would lose my life. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find my life. It's, it's, he's talking about life, but he's talking about a different kind of life. It has a different character and a different nature. And Jesus speaks of this life again in John 10.10 when he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have have life and have it abundantly. That's the promise for his followers. Life and life abundantly. The word life in the Greek, the original manuscripts, is zoe. And I think one of the ways we should think about zoe, when zoe is mentioned, that word for life in the New Testament it, it literally refers to that other kind of life, not our life, but God's life. So you might actually call it God life. So let's insert that. Whoever would save his life will lose God life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find 
God life, the life of God in your life. So when we deny ourselves and lose our life, we find his Zoe, we find his God life. So that's the power source. It's his life at work in us. It's his spirit at work in us. Remember Galatians 5, but the fruit of the spirit is, it lists all these beautiful characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And I think sometimes we, we, we see those things and we think, man, I, I better do that. I better be more loving. I better be more patient. Ready? And then get out on the road in Clarksville, right around all those angry men in trucks. And it doesn't take long for me anyway to have thin skin and struggle with my patience. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, etc., so if those things are fruit of the Spirit, means they're not fruit of Derek. The source is Zoe. It's God life. And it also means that those things are miracles. Now, we love miracles when we think of miracles like the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus raising the dead or opening blind eyes. We love those kinds of miracles. But if you look at the wording of Galatians 5, clearly those fruits of the Spirit are just as miraculous as is raising the dead, opening blind eyes, and feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It's the Zoe life of God within us, producing himself. Or you might say it this way. When God is in you, God produces God. He doesn't produce anything outside himself. So Jesus calls us, follow me, learn from me, imitate me. And then he actually gives you an engine to do it. He gives you the power to do it. That's why we say things like what the gospel demands, it also provides. If he's going to call you to follow him and call you to be his disciple, he's going to form Christ in you by his zoe, by his life, by that God life inside of you. So that's where we start, is we forfeit uh, the rights to rule. We forfeit self-dependency. We say, God, let your spirit come within me. I want to plug into you your love and your spirit and let let it empower me, grow me, form me, and shape me. And now we just want to say a word on the end of the text, the last verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. First of all, Son of Man was a a phrase that was very popular in Old Testament prophetic writings. Um, So it's significant that he would refer to himself in that way. He was clearly saying that he was a fulfillment of the Messianic text of the Old Testament. But he says, there's some standing here, he's talking to his disciples and those following him who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This scripture has been very uh, misunderstood and, and it's, I think, created a lot of confusion with how it's been interpreted. There are actually eight major interpretations of this verse, and I'll spare you listing those this morning. That's not my goal here today. But I'll share what I believe is the most plausible because I think it actually speaks to what we're talking about today. When Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, he is purposely alluding to a text from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Just a piece of it. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. So the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 was set within the context of a judgment scene where God would send a new king over Israel as an act and a sign of Israel's discipline and judgment to rule over them, but he would rule over them forever. 
And it was ultimately talking about the ultimate king who would come. And what we see in the life of Christ is that the Jewish nation was judged through Jesus. There was a a time when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and he, he was speaking of the temple, the ceremonial worship of the temple. And he said, look, he said to the priests, your house is left to you desolate. He announced the end of sacrificial worship when he pronounced judgment against the house of Israel who had failed to recognize their Messiah when he came to them and they actually killed him. So that was the first kind of judgment that came with Christ as this king came to judge and rule over Israel. But the second judgment we see was the judgment that fell on Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You, you were judged. Here's the thing. The Bible teaches that you were judged already in Christ. Israel was judged in Christ for all who would believe in him. And that's why as we look forward to the day when we see Christ face to face, we look forward to judgment day, we can have confidence and joy because God won't judge the same sin twice. Your sins have been judged in Christ. And to suggest to God that you need to sort of pay for your sins with penance or multiple acts of repentance is to say that the cross wasn't good enough for me and it wasn't good enough for you. So to be a believer means I believe that this king has come, that the son of man has come in his kingdom. He's come already. He's judged the house of Israel and established a new Israel made up of both natural Israel and spiritual Israel into one new man. And secondly, that Jesus was judged already for the sins of the world for all who believe in him. Therefore, your sins have been judged and you can walk before the Father in perfect confidence and harmony because your righteousness, God sees you like he sees Jesus himself. You're not a God. You're not a member of the Trinitarian Godhead, okay? But you are accepted and loved like Christ the Son is because Jesus was judged. And the good news is that this clearly means that Jesus has come into his kingdom. He's king over the whole world. And whether they or we acknowledge it, he is king over the entire world and over the entire universe. In fact, the scripture says, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and declare that he is Lord. And I want to ask you today, is he your king? Are you his disciple? Are you his son or daughter? Are you following him? He says to you, He invites you, follow me. Have you welcomed him to the throne of your heart? Where do we start? Acknowledge him as your king and let his power work over every fiber of your life. Like the psalmist David said, maybe you're a kid who's grown up in a Christian family. David said, oh Lord God, my God. Not just the God of my dad or the God of my mom or the God of my pastor. He said, oh Lord God, I acknowledge that you're God and you are my God. And I hope today that you can have a moment with the Lord. If you haven't done that, you can have a moment with the Lord where you welcome him into your life. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.